Audio conversation with Jim Mars recorded Tuesday, April 23rd, 2013. Uh, the very first book I read of Jim's was uh, Crossfire. Uh, the subtitle is The Plot That Killed Kennedy. I read it shortly after the uh, Oliver Stone JFK film. At that point, I hadn't read anything about the uh, the JFK assassination, so I was kind of blown away by uh, the, the research in that. Uh, the next book I read of his, I'm pretty sure, was Alien Agenda, which is, um, you know, there's actually not that much new information in that book, but it is a very good compilation of a lot of existing information put together in a really uh, informative way. And, and then at some point, uh, probably in the early 2000s, uh, I started following Whitley Strieber's audio program, Dreamland, and Jim was a frequent guest and also a frequent co-host. And and I think that's where I really started to follow his work um, through his audio interviews and then uh, and subsequently reading reading his books. Um, and then I I actually had lunch with him. I, I wonder. I doubt he remembers it. This is going back probably to 2008, and it was at a UFO conference in Laughlin, Nevada. And I was standing in line. The conference was held in this really tacky casino. And uh, Jim and I were standing in line to eat lunch at this uh, little crummy diner thing that they had there. So, uh, you know, we got to talking, and he said, hey, you know, join us. And so I sat with him and uh, Paula Harris and this other woman that was writing a book that sounded really interesting. I feel bad that I never talked with her much uh, about a, a murder that took place connected potentially to the Montauk Project happened on Long Island. Anyway, it's a long uh, retelling uh, just to say this one thing. Jim is incredibly charismatic and and he completely puts you at ease. Uh, He's got that sweet Texas accent and uh, it is so obvious how he can uh, play the role he does. I mean, he he started off as a reporter in, in Dallas and, um, boy, I could see uh, not wanting to talk to any reporters and then having Jim come up and being totally disarmed by his uh, his charms. Uh, so, yeah, sitting at a bar having a beer with that guy, man, I would tell him anything. He, he's He's got that kind of presence. Oh, anyway, he, he, there's a great big long list of books that he's published in the last uh, 20 years or so. I'm really impressed, really high-quality stuff. I have read pretty much everything he's written, I realize. Uh, I'll take that back. There's one book that I have not read, which is his only fiction book, which is titled Sisterhood of the Rose. It came out maybe four years ago. If you scroll down to the show notes, you'll find a link to Jim's homepage, and from there you can uh, get a big long list of the books he's published in the last 20 years, which is impressive. He really cranks these things out. Now, at the end of the interview, there is, uh, I think it's about 17 minutes long, an audio excerpt from his most recent book, which is titled Our Occulted History. I have that on uh, on my computer as an audio file, and I included a short section that I found pretty interesting. Now, the interview was is only an hour long, uh, and then, then there's that extra 17 minutes at the end. This interview runs for just a little bit under one hour. Um, I had an amazing time. I was super honored to get the chance to talk with him. Please enjoy. Hey, Jim, I just want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you and your astute audience. Oh, good. Thank you. They'll be, they'll be ha- happy to hear that. Hey, um, I have a bunch of questions written down here. 
And I'm pretty sure we're going to run out of time before I run out of questions. But um, so conversations have a life of their own. And But I'm going to do my best to keep this uh, sort of focused in on the directly on the UFO phenomena. I know you're, you've got a wealth of knowledge that goes all over the map, but um, I'm just going to try to, for, for this one hour, keep it focused on the, on the core UFO topic. That's fair enough. And, uh, but, uh, you know, you, you surely you realize that, uh, it's all one big ball of wax or, or should I say a ball of energy and that, uh, everything's interconnected and that, uh, you cannot separate out anything that's going on from just the UFO phenomena. Uh, in fact, if you, uh, for those who are discounting the UFO phenomena, they'll never ever be able to figure out truthfully what's going on on this planet because they they're tossing out a big piece of the puzzle. I agree completely. Yeah. So the so let's the the UFO phenomenon for for our hour will be the wheel the hub on the wheel. So and then yeah. we'll we'll follow those spokes wherever they're going to lead. So. Hey, Jacques Vallée gave a presentation, and it's online. Uh, there's a YouTube video, and he's talking, and it's a conference about remote viewing. And um, during the question and answer thing at the end, he says something that uh, that was interesting. It did not surprise me, but he said that um, a lot of the people who have been working as remote viewers at some point in their life had a very close UFO encounter, and then they they'll say these remote viewers will say that that interaction with the UFO um, was the was the genesis or, or you know that that uh, opened them up to the to these psychic skills that they're using as remote viewers. I don't mm-hmm. know if you had heard that or not. Oh yeah. Uh, well, uh, as you may or may not know, I was the I, I was the one actually. It was all set to break the story of remote viewing. I had a book ready to go through a city area of Random House. Uh, back in 1995, uh, and they had even sold, uh, you know, pre-publication sales, and uh, then they just canceled it at the last minute, and then a couple of months later, the CIA put out a press release announcing that they'd been using this psychic ability called remote viewing. And what I found really fascinating in my research, uh, which went back into probably... Uh, 91, 92, when it was still a secret program, uh, is that every single one of the military-trained remote viewers uh, had experiences with UFOs. Not all of them would talk about it at the time. Some did. Some talked very openly then and now. Uh, others talked very guardedly. They would simply admit that they had had some anonymous, uh, you know, uh, experiences uh, and others just wouldn't talk about it at all. But it became clear uh, through my interviews with the various remote viewers who were trained and operated under the uh, Intelligence Security Command of the U.S. Army that they all had these experiences. Um, what was also interesting is is that uh, they all had an experience with UFOs, although technically and officially they were never, ever tasked to go look for UFOs. All right? but usually what happened was is that they were being used for military intelligence purposes, which was to go and, uh, well, for example, they would be tasked to go look for uh, high-performance, high-flying aircraft uh, with the idea that, uh, of trying to find out what the Russians, the Soviets at that time, or the, or the Chinese might be 
testing and experimenting with, well, they'd go up and they'd look at this craft zooming along through our atmosphere. And then uh, as, as one of them told me, he said, they, they realized real quick, these guys were not from the neighborhood. So uh, they all began to uh, see this. Um, and of course, uh, as Mel Riley once told me, uh, you know, he kind of lost interest in looking for Soviet submarines when he could see UFOs. <laughs> now, so this here's the question: like, what is what happens? What's what what's taking place? You know, what sort of a psychic enlightenment or whatever is is uh, at play with you know uh, as a result of the UFO contact? Right. Well, uh, wh- whether or not it actually expands your consciousness in some way, uh, I think it should be clear to anyone that once you have a UFO experience, uh, then it is no longer a question of belief. It's not, do you believe they're real? Do you believe they're there? It becomes a question, uh, a thing of knowledge. You know they're here. You know they're there. And that sheer knowingness uh, obviously then uh, raises your consciousness and expands your horizons. So uh, whether or not there's any um, conscious uh, elevation of uh, thought, consciousness, uh, it's going to happen anyway because uh, you're simply expanding your mental horizons. Now, do you think that the government um, is still has a remote viewing program, or do you think that's been sort of shuttled off to uh, private industry? Well, uh, it's a, it's a little of both. Uh, do they have a program of remote viewers, uh, a unit like they did when they had this uh, real flame or uh, Stargate unit within uh, the U.S. Army? No. Technically, that's why they can technically get away with saying, no, we do not uh, have remote viewers in the U.S. government, okay, because they do not technically have a unit. But they have very good remote viewers now embedded in various and sundry uh, units within government, particularly in the military. Uh, I mean, let's face it, uh, you know, what combat commander doesn't want to have somebody on his team who might in some way give some idea of what's on the other side of the hill? So uh, they have remote viewers that are now embedded with uh, Navy SEALs, with Army Rangers, uh, and I'm sure with other government agencies. Uh, uh, and then, of course, they can always contract with uh, people, I'm starting to say all, maybe not all, but a great number of the military intelligence officers who were trained by the U.S. Army uh, with the use of this psychic ability known as remote viewing uh, have, since leaving the military, have gone into uh, the the teaching game. They are teaching people to use this uh, uh, technology, this psychic technology, And as a result, they also take contracts from the government. So if the government wants to use remote viewing to, say, go look for a suitable landing site on Mars or something like that, uh, and they don't want to get caught with their fingers in the psychic pie, well, then they go and contract it out uh, to one of these uh, experienced remote viewers who then (laughs) oftentimes uses his students and trainees (laughs) as... uh, as a research cadre, and they go and look and prepare a report and then hand it in to the government. In this way, the government has plausible deniability. They can say, no, we're not doing that because technically, no, they're not. They're contracting with uh, private citizens. 
Now, do you think that the government is, or or some arm of the government, or a shadow government, or some uh, uh, private contractor, do you think they're actually looking for abductees or contactees as a first step, and then using them, uh, you know, sort of ushering them into the program to do the remote viewing? Um, I, I, I'm not convinced that there's a huge uh, conscious program to. Uh, to go out there and try to get hold of abductees, but I'm sure that they will pay very close attention uh, to anyone who uh, comes to their attention that claims to have had these experiences and that seems to have had a good uh, uh, a good view and, and and a good means of reporting on on their experiences because this just gains them more and more information. Yeah, yeah. Now, um. I want to ask some questions about mind control. This is something that somehow in my research seems to come up over and over again, you know, on two levels. One would be uh, the sort of government programs like MKUltra. And the other uh, sort of wing of this would be that the, that the UFO occupants seem to have a powerful form of mind control that where they can directly influence uh, the abductees. Mm-hmm. And um, I, in the same way that, uh, you know, technicians would I assume be trying to uh, you know back engineer the propulsion uh, engines of a, of a crashed flying saucer from Roswell? Mm-hmm. Um, would are there? Do you think there are technicians out there who are trying to back engineer the uh, mind control that the aliens are using? Well, let's let's separate mind control. That's a, that's really a scary thing. It is scary to me because. Uh, you know, I always like to feel like that no matter what's going on, no matter what somebody's trying to do to me, I've always got my mind. You know, I can keep my willpower. I can keep my, my own ego, uh, you know, and to think that they could come in and just take you over. I mean, you know, that sounds like a science fiction pod people you know, scenario. Uh, so, I, and I'm not even convinced that, uh, uh, that, that that's uh, all that real. Uh, I think they can try. I know. Uh, I know. When I was researching the Army's reunion, it, uh, this was during the days of President Reagan. Uh, they got all concerned because they thought maybe the Soviets or somebody could come in and mind control President Reagan. And so they did a bunch of studies and they went and kind of tried it out on other people and looked around. And anyway, they kind of decided that although uh, foreign spies could come and view the president, see where he was, what he was doing, maybe even what he was thinking, how he was feeling, uh, they could not really directly control him. So let's let's get away from mind control. Let's talk about remote influencing. Now, that's a little bit different thing. In fact, uh, this began to bother me as I researched uh, remote viewing is that uh, when I began to get into the area of remote influencing, uh, a lot of these... Uh, military intelligence officers would kind of clam up. This was an area they didn't really want to go to. Uh, But my impression and what I know about it, I can tell you this. I don't think that it's very probable that one remote viewer can sit in a chair somewhere and they can come and then get in your mind and and severely uh, uh, manipulate uh, or influence you to do something that you really wouldn't want to do. but I think it is possible that a gang of remote viewers, say five or six or seven, could all concentrate on you 
and particularly maybe over a period of time, might be able to sway your emotion, your emotional balance to, say, fear or anger or something that might lead you to do uh, something that you might normally not want to do. Uh, but it's kind of like the argument that comes up about hypnotism. Can you hypnotize somebody and have them kill somebody? You know, that would go totally against the, uh, the, the grain of how they would normally operate. And the answer kind of is mixed. It's number one, no, you can't. Uh, I couldn't hypnotize you and have you go kill somebody, but I might be able to hypnotize you and tell you that you have to protect yourself from somebody so quick, pick up that gun and shoot them. And you might do that. I don't know. It's a really touchy area, and it's one that uh, that most people don't even want to deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think of Sirhan Sirhan as a as a sort of a Manchurian candidate. Uh, Good. Yeah. At, at the, as an example of someone who um, was probably under the influence of some sort of trauma based mind control. In well, and I, th- I think we may see this. Uh, we possibly could see this in operation in the Boston Marathon bombings. Uh, the, the those two the two brothers who are being charged with these bombings. You know. Uh, on the one hand, uh, supposedly tell this uh, guy they captured that, yes, we did it, but then they told their father, we weren't anywhere near there, we, you know, we, we didn't know anything about it. Uh, and then we find out that they had been under the supervision, under the, under the uh, uh, surveillance of the FBI for three years, and so, you know, there's no telling what could have been done to them, and they might be fall into that same Sirhan Sirhan classification where they honestly don't recall uh, what they've done. Yeah, and this is where, like the the Boston thing, I mean, it's just so new. And, and I one of the things that's, uh, I mean, I've just shocked at the, at the flurry of information, uh, conflicting information that just shows up <laughs> either online or on television in the 24-hour news cycle. And, um, right. I was, they can't seem to get their story straight. Which, I mean, is probably, uh, you know, it would be tough, you know, to get all the facts perfectly aligned, you know, right out of the gate, uh, you know, whether there's anything uh, oh, conspiratorial going on here or not. But the thing that that is actually has left me uh, more. Uh, the one thing that I'm aware of is, you know, how is the the big machine, you know, the the big giant. Uh, all-controlling machine, how is that going to spin this event to their own advantage? Well, I'll tell you something. I find this really, really fascinating because I'm going to give you my uh, thought on this. uh, I think that they had a very pat uh, scenario worked out, okay? And I think this Saudi that they arrested and said had powder on his hands and stuff like that, and now they're simply uh, deporting me back to Saudi Arabia, and, and the Saudi Arabian foreign minister rushes over here to meet in the White House, and, uh, you know, uh, there was a flurry of activity there. I think they had a nice pat scenario all worked out. Uh, and then because of the alternative media, and I would particularly give kudos to uh, Alex Jones and his team, because they started posting all of the pictures of the Kraft International uh, you know, private security contractors in their black shirts and their uh, desert combat boots uh, running around there at the scene of the explosion, hustling around, pulling something out from under the grandstand, 
had the little black van with the communications bubble on the top. Uh, what are they doing there, and who hired them, and why won't the uh, corporate mass media even acknowledge that they were there? Well, is is this a false flag? I think this was in, uh, the whole idea to begin with, and I think that because of the alternative media, uh, and this time, instead of just sitting back and accepting the government pronouncement, uh, there was lots of people who were actually actively looking at the films and the photographs and studying it, thinking, okay? And I think that it caused, uh, it caused a, a derailment uh, of their little pat uh, thing, and I think now they're scrambling. They had to scramble for, uh, you know, plan B, and now they're trying to come up with this pat little thing about, well, now we got two loan nuts instead of one loan nut, but they're not connecting anybody and uh, did it all on their own and yada, yada, you know, and now they're scrambling to make uh, that plan B work, and yet there's so many holes in that. Uh, first, we were told that they they were the brothers were captured because they robbed a Seven Eleven or a convenience store, and then we're told no, it really wasn't them. That was somebody else. And and then well, uh, you know, the the one of them rushed the police with his explosive vest on. And no, because there are films of him being taken into custody and stripped down and put into a squad car. I mean, the whole, they got a lot of holes in their story, and I think they're still scrambling to try to put something together. But of course. We'll probably never know because uh, the mass media will only report what the official words are. Now, in the, I was following this on the alternative media. I mean, just Facebook alone was a, was a was a yeah. crazy with stuff. Um, I didn't know. I mean, I haven't followed the story as closely as you have, so I didn't know quite what to think. Um, well, I just got through reading the affidavit that the FBI filed uh, the charges uh, that they brought against uh, the younger brother. Uh, and it's, uh, on the one hand, it appears to be very detailed, but then on the other hand, uh, there's, there's some holes in it big enough to drive a truck through, you know, so I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm at this point, I'm very confused. And one of the things that let's how to say this, like if I was, uh, you know, my job was, uh, you know, to, to confuse the alternative media, um, you know, what I right. would do if I was working in the basement of the Pentagon, I would come up with some, some false leads that would go nowhere and then uh, sprinkle them or litter them on the internet uh, through websites or through, you know, however, whatever means they would want to use. So that, in a way, that's what I was trying to be aware of. My guess was that that was taking place, that there was... Well, hey, Mike, I, I think you've been reading their playbook, because <laughs> that's exactly their method of operation. And that goes all the way back to the uh, President Kennedy assassination. Uh, in that the cover-up has never been a cover-up in the classic sense, in other words, a lack of information evidence. In fact, it's quite the obvious. It's the uh, opposite. It's uh, obfuscation. It's they throw out so many uh, red herrings and straw men and, and charge and counter-charge claim and counter-claim, and, you know, they keep the, the issue so confused that the average person just says, oh, man, I don't want to hear any more about that. Yeah, That's the cover-up. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and that was the 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 flurry was was so immediate and so uh, heavy-handed online that right. um, I was trying to figure out whether it was you know all just from concerned bloggers uh, or whether there was whether there were other you know other players involved. Well, you have a you have a wide swath there. Uh, you've got a lot of people who mean well uh, and are conspiracy-minded. But we'll latch on to anything and everything and, and do not give proper consideration to the source, 
uh, nor do they, you know, try to connect dots before they put anything out, and then they just come up with some interesting conjecture, and then too often put it out as though it was fact. So you got well-meaning people that are just way off base, and then you've got uh, people who uh, just uh, would believe anything the government tells them. The government can do no wrong, and they they are well-intentioned too, but they add to the confusion. And then on top of all of this, you've got uh, people who are what the, what do they call them trolls, uh, you know, who get on the internet and they know better. They know things, and they're either paid or they're or they uh, are under orders, or they just assume this is what their superiors want. And they're on there 24-7 putting out stuff to confuse the issue. Uh, those are usually can be identified by the ones who, instead of addressing the issues, start name-calling. You know, well, you're an idiot. Well, you're a blah, 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 SOB, blah, 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 you know, uh, because that's one of the oldest debate tricks in the book, you know, when you cannot... <clears throat> argue against your opponent's position, then you just argue against your opponent. Call him names and say, well, he's just trying to make money and he doesn't know what he's talking about, yada, yada, and that type of stuff. Hey, um, yeah, it's at this point, I'm just I'm waiting to see how this all plays out. Uh, I haven't right. really dug into that, it. That's a good way to do it, just uh, wait and see how it all shakes out and don't, don't stick your neck out until you're certain of your, of your facts. Hey, now, so here's something that I've seen in my uh, just, uh, you know, talking with folks who have the direct contact experience. Um, it's not universal, but it, it's a surprising, uh, uh, there's a surprising consistency where you'll talk to folks. And at one point, um, you know, folks who basically are abductees and and at some point they'll say something like, oh, you know, my father worked in military intelligence. They, there seems to be a common thread of military connection, doesn't there? I, I don't. I mean, I I am so cautious. I mean, it, that it sounds like a uh, like the script to an X Files episode in a way, um, <laughs> and so I'm true. cautious to jump to any conclusions. But it is a very real pattern from what I've seen. Very real. And I'll tell you the thing that actually surprised me was uh, when I was researching for my book, Alien Agenda, and uh, looking into the uh, experiencing phenomena. I hesitate to call it abductions because abduction is a very negative word and you're already putting some emotional baggage onto this thing. And this gets back to what I was going to say here, which is I was kind of shocked and, and uh, surprised to find that uh, we ha tend to have, uh, the public has a generally negative uh, connotation uh, because of the word abduction and because of the idea that you're being taken against your will, which is a pretty negative and scary type thing. But I was surprised and shocked to find that there was a, probably an equal number of people uh, who do not look on it as a negative experience. They look at it as a positive experience. In fact, I had one lady tell me that she felt like she was an honored guest. Okay, now here's the difference. The people who feel like they've been violated, the people who feel like they've been traumatized, then they start looking for answers, and they're very concerned about what's happened to them. So they go to Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and people like that uh, who have made a career out of dealing and uh, with uh, people who've had these experiences, but they tend to only get the ones with a negative because the people who've had a positive experience uh, they're not that bothered by it, and, and they certainly don't want to risk the ridicule 
that is usually heaped upon someone who claims to have these experiences. So they don't say anything to anybody except maybe their very close family or friends. Uh, and as a result, then, the, as far as the public goes, uh, it's all, all all they mostly hear is uh, from a negative experience standpoint. So I was surprised to find that there may be an equal number of people uh, who do not look at it as a negative experience, but then they don't get the publicity. You know, very true. You know, I've, I've, I, I feel it's split somehow close down the middle. I've seen that same mm-hmm. pattern. And, uh, you know, the folks that are having the positive experiences tend to drift. This is a very uh, broad generalization, but they'll tend to drift into more new agey things. I mean, I can't tell you how many mm-hmm. people I've met that mm-hmm. are now, you know, that uh, uh, are working as psychic healers uh, with, with, you know, who've had positive experiences. Well, that brings us back to, uh, to where we're at the first of the conversation which is the the fact that they now know that they have had an experience with something outside our normal three-dimensional material plane. Uh, And just by that sheer knowingness, uh, their consciousness uh, and worldview has expanded. And so they naturally would gravitate towards some of the the new age philosophy. Yeah, and I've actually talked to some folks who, um, I mean, this has also been, that that will, uh, you know, have a, uh, a day-to-day job, and then they'll sort of abandon that, and then they'll take up. This has been a very real pattern. They'll take up Reiki, Reiki healing, uh-huh. and um, and they often won't know why. And then later, after becoming a Reiki healer, they'll they'll come to terms and and realize that they actually have had uh, contact experiences. Right. Yes, I can I can uh, empathize with that because years ago when I was working in uh, public relations and advertising and. I'd put on my three-piece suit and I'd drive all the way into Dallas and I'd be in the big boardrooms and you know and talking uh, you know fast-track business uh, deals and then I'd come home in the afternoon and put on my blue jeans and go sit on the bluff and watch the uh, watch the hawk circle over the valley and breathe the fresh air and and it it turns you pretty schizophrenic. It's like wait a minute, which one's the real world? You know. And, of course, it didn't take me too long to figure out the real world is uh, the real earth and the hawks and the clean air, not not those stuffy boardrooms. <laughs> well, I'll let me just say that I worked in advertising for a decade in New York City, and now I live in a very tiny cabin in a very rural part of Idaho. So, <laughs> Hey, you had the same experience. <laughs> and it happened, yeah. It was, it, yeah, I actually came out to be a ski bum for one year, uh, and that happened. That was in 1986, So, um, and I've been here ever since. Right. Yeah, well, once you get a taste of true freedom and fresh air and elbow room, uh, you couldn't pay me to go back in a city. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I lived at New York City is an exciting place, and I did I do miss it sometimes. Well, it's a and, great place to visit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a great place to be 20. Let me put it that Yeah, so that was uh, – um, uh, okay, we got off track. I'm, I'm gonna t- hey, so yeah. you said you don't use the word abductee, and I actually do. Well, I try not to. I mean, you can't help but use it sometimes, but – but when you use abductee, that just automatically, you know, if I tell you, hey, I'm going to come over tonight and abduct you, I mean, that just kind of already puts you on a guard, it puts you on guard, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. And I mean, and it's, it's, it seems to be the word we're stuck with because that's, you know, the commonplace word. But, um, you know, I, I, I experiencer doesn't really fit and then contactee uh, doesn't 
you know, that has an implication also. So, you know, I right. struggle. I wish that, you know, I would almost like, you know, come up with a yeah, word. We, that we need to come up with something else. Yeah, something's totally neutral, you know, like, uh, yeah. you know, word X or something like that, you know, so. Maybe we we just call ourselves visitors. We're just visiting. Except maybe they're visiting. Oh, uh, well, it's, it gets tough. So, um, your, uh, your last two books, sort of paint a picture of, uh, that would be, um, The Trillion Dollar Conspiracy and, uh, Our Occulted History. Right. Uh, those two books, and then I'll also, uh, though it came out uh, a few years ago, I would throw um, Rule by Secrecy into that same pile. So you put well, our this... cultured history actually is kind of a follow-on, uh, an expanded version of Rule by Secrecy. Um, that what I've done in our cultured history, and by the way, just so people won't get the wrong idea, when I use the term occulted, uh, it, this book has nothing to do with devil worship or witches or vampires or zombies or anything we usually think of the, as the occult. I use it in the astronomical sense in that when the moon eclipses the sun, that's called an occultation. It occults the sun. It ha- hides or masks the sun. So our occulted history simply means our history that has been hidden from us. Uh, and what it culminates in is the combination of two topics that are heretofore, I don't think most people uh, put them together. Uh, one is uh, the one that uh, uh, so many of the alternative media is now concerned with, which is the New World Order or the 1% or the Illuminati or whatever you want to call them, the idea that there is a super rich clique of people who are trying to run the planet, uh, largely through economic means. Uh, that's kind of an old topic of discussion and still ongoing. And then uh, a newer uh, topic is growing in popularity, probably thanks to the uh, uh, History Channel's TV series, uh, which is concerns ancient astronauts or ancient aliens. <clears throat> and my working hypothesis was, uh, do, they, do these two topics connect and yes they do and it's really interesting because now the people who say well we need to find out what the government's doing and we need to stop the new world order but they don't want to look at the ufo issue uh they're they're never going to figure it out and the people who are all into the ufos but they don't want to hear about government conspiracy they're never going to figure it out either because it's all part of the same thing uh, the and the people at the top, the people who are this one percent that own more than everybody else combined, uh, you know, they trade. They are well aware of this connection. Uh, they and they uh, well, for example, the uh, Rothschild banking dynasty, which a lot of people point to as being one of the leading banking uh, controlling groups in the world. They. Uh, they claim to trace their ancestry back to the Sumerian god king Nimrod. Uh, so they're very much aware of these connections to the distant past. Uh, and uh, I think they work pretty hard to their foundations and to their grant uh, powers uh, to prevent us from knowing about all this. And that leads to the big question of, well, you know, do they uh, are they trying to get in touch with our uh, ET visitors? Or are they already in touch and being guided, uh, if not controlled by them? Or the third possibility is, 
might they be the ancient creators? Uh, because according to the Sumerian tablets and even the Bible, you go back far enough and people were living thousands of years. Um, you know, Methuselah lived 900 and something years. And it's only uh, through the succeeding generations that the age limit dropped and dropped until it, it's where it is today. Uh, so is it possible that some of these people who were treated as gods from the sky three or five and 6,000 years ago might still be here? Uh, I know that's kind of a stretch, but it's no more a stretch than uh, some years ago when people were told that there were UFOs flying in the atmosphere, and they didn't want to hear about that either. Uh, that's sometimes, yeah, this, the, all it takes is one sighting and you're, cha you're, you're changed forever. Yeah. So it seems that's like right. there's about 10% of the population that has had what would be a legitimate UFO sighting. So that's, that's a, that's a pretty strong I, lobbying crew there. My, I, I would say it's even higher than that. Actually. Uh, I was amazed, uh, after my book, Alien Agenda came out, the number of people who I'd known grew up with, you know, that came forward and said, Hey, let me tell you what happened to me one time, or let me tell you what I saw. And they tell me their stories, and I go, hey, whoa, you know, I've known you all my life. Why, why didn't you tell me this before? And they said, well, we didn't think you'd believe us, you know. Once they find out that you're, uh, that you're uh, open and that you're not making any judgment on people, you'd be amazed at the number of people who will come forward and tell you about their experiences. So I think it goes way over 10%. Okay, so in that, but that okay, so it's it is. I'll agree. I'll agree. And the thing that uh, that I'm finding is uh, that uh, the uh, and I'll just jump to your movie, the the uh, Secret of Redgate. I think that's a perfect mm -hmm. example. Uh, I just watched that online. I don't know if you realized it's online now. And um, mm -hmm. I was uh, I had never seen it, and I was I remember when it came out. I remember listening to you talk about it, but I had never ordered it uh, on a DVD. But I watched it online. And um, I, first of all, I have to congratulate you and compliment you that you didn't create um, – how to say this? There's a kind of documentary that's made for cable TV now that I, I find almost unwatchable. And this documentary was was very uh, calm. Let me just put it that way. There was no rapid mm -hmm. editing, and um, you let people tell their stories. It wasn't sort of reduced down to sound bites. And, and I just – as a viewer, I appreciated that greatly. Well, thank you. Yeah, and that was our whole idea. We just simply went and let those people up at Deer Lodge uh, tell us what they knew and what they thought, okay? And you're right. It really bothers me. In fact, I can tell you that uh, up until very recently, it may be changing now, thank goodness, but up until very recently, uh, the uh, Discovery Channel, A&E, History, all of these channels who are all owned by one of the five major multimedia corporations that control everything we see and hear, their whole uh, philosophy has been, well, we'll let you make a documentary about UFOs if you will make fun of them. Now, that's terrible, but that's pretty much the way it operated. I, I know because I've been in for, I don't know, 20 years trying to get some of these shows going, and they, they would come and pick my brain and then use some little soundbite but they never would, uh, I never could get them to, or in fact, the one time that I did uh, have a contract for a series uh, on Discovery Channel, and we came up with just this extraordinary story as a, uh, uh, as a pilot, uh, and in fact, uh, me and uh, 
my other producers, and we were talking about, well, what are we going to do if none of this pans out, you know? And uh, we all decided we were just going to tell the truth. And uh, if we could prove something up, we'd prove it up. If we couldn't, we'd say, well, we can't prove anything up on this. But we came up with an extraordinary story, and they dropped us like a hot rock. I tried to act like they didn't even know who we were. Uh, it's uh, it's just amazing. But like I said, hopefully this is changing somewhat now, and I think that's simply because of, uh, of uh, the uh, fact that younger people are getting in positions of power with the networks now. Now they're opening up a little bit, and uh, they're allowing some more truthful information to come out uh, because uh, you have to understand that the status quo uh, protects itself very strenuously. Uh, this is why whether you're going for a master's degree or a doctor's degree or, or you're trying to invent something or you're trying to make a movie or write a book, uh, if you take that half step beyond current popular knowledge, then you're liable to be okay. You might even have a big hit. But if you take a giant step <laughs> and, and get into things like, uh, well, let's uh, prove up free energy or anti-gravity, well, you get shut down. Uh, and some of that's conscious and some of that's just a natural uh, resistance on the part of the status quo. Hey, you were talking about a documentary that got shut down and the, and the topic was, you know, what you thought was amazing. What was the topic? What was what was the case? <laughs> Are you ready for this? It sounds absolutely outrageous. Oh, you're not going to. I mean, I'm, I'm past. No, the no, point no. Of... I'm going to tell you. Okay. It's, there, there is an alien ghost in Roswell, New Mexico. And this sounds bizarre, but I'll try to quickly tell you the story. I was out in Roswell uh, with a camera team, and we were shooting a documentary, and we needed a, a hospital that looked like one back in the 50s or 60s, and we found it in the New Mexico Rehabilitation Center, uh, which uh, is uh, there to uh, do rehabilitation work for indigents uh, there in the state of New Mexico. It's located on the south side of uh, Roswell. In fact, it turns out it was the base hospital for the old Air Force base that was there, um, which had been built on the side of the old Army airfield. It was there in 1947 in the famous uh, crash there in, the, in July of 1947. And so uh, I was talking to the assistant administrator and asking them if we could get permission to shoot in the hospital. And she was very, very nice, very accommodating, and said, yes, you can go up on the second floor over on this wing over here and just shoot up there. It says, uh, uh, we uh, mostly use that for storage. And if it had ended there, that would have been that. But she had to add, she said, the staff doesn't like to go up there. Well, of course, that got my old reporter's hackles up, and I said, well, you know, why not? And she said, well, they think it's haunted, you know, and said, to come find out. Uh, so while uh, the crew went around and did their thing, I went around and talked to people there at the hospital, interviewed orderlies and, and the doctors and nurses and even some of the patients. And sure enough, they said, yes, it's, it's, it's haunted up there. said, uh, uh, the, at night, lights come off and on, and we hear footsteps, and the elevators go up and down, and we go up there, and there's nobody there, you know. It's kind of a typical haunted hospital story. Almost every hospital has uh, some stories like this. So again, that wasn't that big a deal until I finally located a couple of people who claimed to have seen this apparition. 
And I said, well, you know, what does it look like? And this, uh, this nurse uh, says, well, it's short, about three to four foot tall, and has a right big head and great big dark eyes, you know. And I'm going, holy cow, it sounds like she's describing one of those alien grays like we always hear about, you know. So then we uh, started doing some checking and found out that the second floor wing of this hospital had been built right over the exact spot of the uh, uh, surgical suite of the old Army uh, air, uh, air base there. Uh, and this, of course, according to the stories, is where they brought the uh, dead aliens from the Roswell crash. So, you know, we're thinking, holy cow, an alien ghost? Wait a minute. And uh, so we brought camera crews in, and uh, we uh, would sit up in some of these rooms at night, turn off the air conditioning, and we got pictures of uh, glowing orbs floating through the air, and we got sound on film, you know, of things rattling and banging. It sounds like, sounded like somebody dropped a, a ladder full of material on the roof, but we went up there and there's nobody there. Uh, just got some amazing stuff, and we're all just ecstatic because we're going, holy cow, we got, the, we got some real stuff here. Uh, and then, like I said, though, they, uh, they just dropped us. They didn't want to hear about that. They didn't want anything real. Wow. I mean, that's, this is, this is, uh, oh, like it, it would be one thing if the UFO phenomena was just like a, it was like a, you know, its own little box, right? And it was nice and right. fine. Yeah. And, just and separate, just separate little thing way over here somewhere. Yeah, and we could just sort of, and but but what it what I found is that it it has spider webs that go everywhere. I mean, into right. all kinds of paranormal stuff, whether that be psychic stuff or ghosts or or clairvoyance or um, yeah, it just it seems to be. Well, that's because Mike, it's, it's becoming clear to me, and has been for some time now, that uh, the entire universe, uh, that everything we can conceptualize, uh, is just a seething mass of energy. Okay, so there's so there's no past or present, only what we're perceiving at the moment, and it's all there. Everything's there: past, present, now, then. You know, outer space, inner space. You know, it's all there. And uh, we are, uh, well, kind of give a bad example. Uh, we, we're the tip of the phonograph needle. Okay, stuck in one little bitty groove, and we're we're getting one uh, sight and sound. Uh, and that's what we perceive as reality, and yet there's a whole <laughs> 33 and a third LP, you know, that we're part of. Yeah, yeah. Um, hey, as far as um, uh, the movie Redgate, you know, the thing that impressed me about that was that um, these the folks were very genuine. Uh, it, it was, oh, they were all real. They were all real people. Yeah. We just go up and say, hey, tell us what you know. And then, and I, and I was really amazed at the uh, these people. Uh, for the most part, there were one or two drag their feet, but for the most part, they were perfectly agreeable to go on camera and just tell us uh, what they knew. And since you've seen it, you, you know what I'm talking about. It wasn't like we just had one or two people. We had, you know, we had a pretty good cross section of this. We had old folks, young folks, in between folks, uh, and a pretty good cross section of this whole little town up there. Yeah, yeah, and it and it it's it it uh, personified something that I I see is that um, the and, and a lot of folks were talking about more than just you know seeing lights in the sky. I mean, you're talking about you know out and out contact cases or abduction cases or whatever word you want to use, and uh, and it just my sense was that this is so 
much more widespread than anyone would dare ever imagine. Exactly. If you got that many people in this one little town up in Montana who've had all these experiences, just think, I bet you, uh, I bet you could find dozens of little towns all across the country and certainly across the world who've had similar experiences. Uh, absolutely. Hey, so when, when you talk to people who've had the UFO contact experience or the abduction experience, um, are, are there any questions that you ask that, like, that other investigators might not be asking? Uh, well, I know I got very interested in the uh, whole question of time. Uh, you know, when the UFO comes over, uh, the, uh, the stories are that the car engine stops. Uh, and then when the UFO goes off, the car engines start again. And yet, if you stop and think about it, nobody ever says, yeah, and I turned on the ignition, and I started the car again. Uh -uh. I think what happens here is when the UFO comes over, then all of a sudden the vehicles that are within its energy field, um, it's canceling out gravity, which also is connected to time. I think time stops, and I think that the pistons just freeze, Okay. And then when the uh, energy field passes on, then the cylinders go back to banging and the car goes back to working. And I, I was this was really brought home to me one time because I was mentioning this on a radio program, and I got an email from a guy who says, I'm a trucker. And he says, I'm not sure that's correct. He said, because me and my buddy uh, had this UFO experience one night and, and our trucks didn't stop. And so I wrote him back and explained, yes, but you're in a diesel truck. Diesel runs on compressed gas. It doesn't run on the electrical uh, current uh, spark plugs like a uh, internal combustion engine does. And he came back and says, yeah, you're right. So uh, I think we can see that uh, it was a disturbance in the energy field, uh, and, and that also then disturbed time. And this could explain the missing time phenomena that is so closely associated with the UFO issue. Uh, you know, the guy uh, uh, sees the UFO at 6 o'clock and then immediately goes home, uh, but and he only lives 10 minutes away, but yet he doesn't get home till 7 o'clock. But where's all this missing time go? It's because when he was in the energy field, time had stopped for him. And uh, so I think that explains it. In fact, I interviewed a guy in the Northeast one time who had had a, uh, a, a series of... Uh, experiences, abductions, if you will, uh, and starting when he was a little kid. And uh, it, it, of course, frightened him and, and bothered him for a while. And then after a while, kind of typical human condition, he just kind of got used to it. It's like, oh boy, here we go again. And he told me that one night he was in, uh, in his uh, uh, apartment or home, and he was laying on the couch watching TV, uh, and he got thirsty, so he got up with in the uh, little kitchen area there, and I got in the refrigerator, got him a, a drink, and popped the, the lid on this aluminum can, which has a very distinctive pop fizz, you know. It came back in, stretched back out on his couch, and then immediately got this sensation like, uh-oh, it's going to happen again. And sure enough, the next thing you know, he found himself on a ship, and kind of the typical um, experience. And then the next thing he knew, he, he was back in his room on the couch with the TV still going. And uh, But as he was just laying there and getting his thoughts together, he heard someone in his kitchen open the refrigerator and pull out a can and pop fizz, you know. 
And he said he looked up, and just in the time it took for him to register, he saw himself coming around the corner into the living room, and then this uh, vision of himself just dissipated. So apparently they brought him back just a few moments too soon. So apparently they not only through this energy manipulation can manipulate gravity, uh, but they can also manipulate time. I, I, this is, you are touching this, one of the subjects that I, I, I find most fascinating about this. When I asked you, I didn't expect that, that this answer, which is great. Um, th- there's a guy named Mark Davenport who was a, uh, I'm mm-hmm. pretty sure he was a UFO abductee, and his, and his wife, uh, Leah Haley, uh, is a very outspoken um, contactee. Uh, he wrote a book called Visitors from Time that was amazing, and it really changed my mind. One of the things that bugs me is that some, oh, UFO researchers or or you know whatever you want to call them, enthusiasts will tell the story of the of the car stopping, and then they'll just say, oh, it was there was some sort of electromagnetic pulse that stopped the car. And and if I'm if like if a, I mean, there's like a weapon that that's like an electromagnetic pulse, and if that, right. That car's never going to start again. Everything's fried. Yeah, I, I was getting ready to say on electromagnetic pulse, it fries the electronics, and it, it, it it's not going to start again. Yeah, yeah. So that's that was a, that's like an incorrect use of the term. So one of the things that also shows up with this, uh, and this is one of the things that Mark Davenport did a beautiful job of uh, speculating on. I don't know if he's correct, but it, but I, I could follow his logic. Um, if uh, if time is altered, even just a little bit. Uh, you know, the, the like sound, you know, travels in a wave, right? So um, we have only a very narrow spectrum of what we can hear, you know, maybe a dog can hear a little bit more, Uh, you know, maybe there's, uh, you know, uh, technologies that can, can hear in different spectrums of the sound, but. Which they can, I mean, those technologies exist. Sure, sure. But our human ears. They go beyond the human hearing. Yeah. Our human ears are, are, are just have a very narrow, uh, are capable of hearing just a little sliver of that spectrum. Now, uh, if, you know, so we can sort of imagine the little wave of a sound wave. If you change that wave just a little bit by distorting time, like if you, that, that wave is moving through time. So if you change it just a little bit, it, w- it would our, our ability to hear would be influenced, and that is actually one of the most common things you will hear an abductee say, or a contactee, or even a witness of any sort say. They'll say, you know, like, oh, this you know UFO flew over the house, and as it came over, everything got very quiet. It was very eerie, and then mm-hmm. as it moved away, the sound came back. Um, mm-hmm. And you know that is just a that energy field. That's that because it, it froze time in the, in that whole area, and like. The bird that was outside singing the tree, he's still there. He's still singing, but uh, everything slows down. Everything comes to a stop, and and uh, you're not going to hear anything. Everything goes dead quiet. Yes, and then the the, the you know the, the 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 puzzle, the mind puzzle for me is that you know then uh, within that frozen time, you know uh, very often. Uh, you know, little gray aliens will come up to someone's car, open the door, and es- then escort escort them to a landed UFO, and right. it will take place in that frozen time. So, you know, th- it's a it's a little uh, challenge for my brain to wrap my mind around this stuff. Well, if you are outside that energy field, uh, you would not perceive anything going on because uh, it's uh, it's not happening in your uh, in your sphere of reference. Now, as a researcher. Or I guess I, I call myself a researcher. I'm sort of digging into this for very personal reasons. But um, 
and I've seen it with other folks, there is sort of a crazy line. You know, uh, things just become so fantastical that you can't uh, that you can't really go beyond that line. And I and for me, that line fluctuates with the wind sometimes. But um, do you have uh, some stuff that you just you can't process? And uh, is just sort of beyond your ability to to make sense of. I'm just curious where your crazy line might be. Um, oh, there's lots of stuff. Uh, I think the thing that drives me nuts is uh, is trying to comprehend the universe. Okay, which is kind of like saying, well, you know, uh, comprehend a billion dollars. Uh, we can say that, but we really can't comprehend that. That's just it's it's a number that's so beyond. Uh, our normal thinking, and to think of the universe, you know, we, you know, we're we're part of the Milky Way galaxy, which is just one of a jillion galaxies, which then make up probably superverses, which are you know the uncountable there too. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the Urantia book, but uh, I, I have read. I have a I have a, a, a an excerpt of it. It's a probably it's probably four hundred pages long, but I have a book on my shelf. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to the early parts of that where they're trying to explain the, all the different realms and the different, you know, that, that just gets beyond me uh, because I figure, uh, I think uh, I think we're doing good to comprehend our own, uh, as, as uh, far out as, say, our own galaxy. And once you get past that, it's just kind of a exercise in futility. Uh, we have the words, but I don't think we have truly the concept. And I think it's the same thing when you start dealing with other dimensions, other planes of existence, which I am pretty convinced exist. Again, we're, we're all just a part of this energy field. And in fact, we are energy beings, you know, who are uh, either uh, self-imposed or externally uh, uh, imposed, uh, trapped in these meat sacks, okay? Uh, and then, but this is this is a good thing because... Uh, this answers the question of what happens when your meat sack uh, grows old and withered and, and, and is no longer functional. Uh, well, then you die, except you, the real spark of energy, the the energy that energizes your meat sack, uh, doesn't die. In fact, science tells us that you energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It can only change form. So uh, when you're uh, physical body dies, you just move on and do something else. But uh, since it's beyond our uh, physical capabilities of discernment, uh, we just don't know quite yet uh, how that operates, and therefore most people are scared to death of it because uh, it, it's fear of the unknown. You're not, you're not sure what's going to happen, so you, uh, it's, uh, it, we're, we're beginning to, to see uh, how this operates in this uh, so-called war on terror, which is a, a kind of a misnomer anyway. But uh, you have some people, uh, the whole thing uh, on terror, whether you're torturing someone for information or whether you're trying to intimidate them into to doing something you want them to do is based on fear. It's based on your, your fear of dying. Well, if you don't fear dying, then you know, you're wasting your time, and it doesn't work. And that's why, you know, it's one thing to have a huge military machine with all this equipment, all this body armor, and all these tanks and planes and everything else. But if you're up against people who aren't afraid to die, uh, you're going to have a real problem, <laughs> as we're finding out. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, you know, I, the, when I asked about the crazy line, you know, one of the things that comes up, and I've asked this of other folks, and uh, very often they'll say like, "Oh, channeled books, I can't stand it. You know, it drives me crazy." And that's their that's their crazy line. They won't go past that. And I just oh, love for that. for channelers. Well, I just know for yeah for like the channelers, like it just being dismissive of channelers, which I'll tell you also that uh, there's a lot of UFO abductees that are uh, you know channeling, and and that gets right. ignored. Well, uh, let me tell you what the Army Train Remote viewers told me about channeling, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Channeling basically is similar to remote viewing. It's the same type of thing, but there's a huge difference. In remote viewing, you are consciously aware, and you keep your conscious identity. You're out in the universe looking and observing things, okay? Channeling, you open yourself up to whatever or whoever might want to come in. And they, uh, as they explained to me, and I tend to agree, I think this is somewhat dangerous because there are entities out there who would just love to get a foothold in our world. And if you open yourself up to them, well, let's say you decide you wanted to go and uh, channel Mahatma Gandhi, okay, when I, our sister Teresa, you know, how, how can you go wrong doing something like that? Well, the thing is, oh, here I am. I'm Mahatma I'm I'm Gandhi. Let me in there, and I'll tell you everything you want to know. You know, how do we know that we're not being uh, manipulated and fooled by someone, by some entity claiming to be somebody? And the, the answer is you don't really know for certain, and therefore uh, I think you need to stick to remote viewing and, and eschew the channeling. Well, it's interesting because you you referenced a channeled book. You referenced the Urantia book, mm-hmm. and uh, which, in my sense, is that there's uh, there's some beautiful material out there that's been channeled oh, yeah. that just reads like poetry. And yeah, and, and that doesn't mean that all channeling is is wrong or evil. Yeah. It just means that there is the possibility for deceit. Yeah. Hey, um, this has been great. Uh, anything you want to say uh, to sum this up? Um. Well, it's, uh, I would say, you know, there's a whole lot more to the world than what we perceive. But then uh, I'm probably not telling your audience that or they wouldn't be listening to you in the first place. <laughs> so uh, just, uh, I think it's incumbent upon us to just keep our eyes and ears and minds open and uh, just uh, go at it from the standpoint of, of knowledge and, and uh, loving knowledge, we want we want to do, we want to know more so that we can make our world, in fact, the whole universe, uh, a better place to exist for all living sentient things. Uh, that's a great way to end it. Hey, thanks so much. Um, this was wonderful. I was really excited when you said yes to this interview, and this has been great. Great. Well, thank you so much. Good. Good. I hope to hope to bump into you again someday. Okay, thanks. thanks okay, Mike. we good? We're all good. Okay, thanks, Mike. Bye, adios. Bye. Hi, this is Mike chiming in at the end of the editing process. You know, one hour seems really short uh, for, for talking with a guy like Jim. Now, what is coming up next is a, an excerpt from his most recent book, which is titled Our Occulted History, and the subtitle is do the Global Elite Conceal Ancient Aliens? Uh, this book is very new. It just came out in February of 2013, so a little over two months ago. Uh, it is published by William Morrow. I didn't actually read the book. I listened to it uh, on an audio file, which I got from audible.com. This clip is about 17 minutes long, 
and it, it is just a, a one little point in the book that I thought was interesting. Uh, it deals with the um, the Rh negative factor, which comes up all the time in just re- in the last few years within the um, UFO research community. And his essay on the blood types as well as uh, the Rh negative factor is pretty interesting. There's a little more after that, um, and I hope you enjoy it. Here you go. It runs in the genes. The Rothschilds are only the most visible of those who consider themselves ordained to serve as masters over ordinary humans. The Blue Bloods, as they see themselves, are born leaders due to their bloodline. Only within white blood cells can be found human DNA, the blueprint of life. And today, researchers have suggested that some genes within white blood cell DNA may be from extraterrestrials. Such alien genetics might confirm the Sumerian accounts of visitation and intervention in antiquity by non-humans. The evidence for non-human genes within the blood is strong. Mammalian red blood cells primarily carry oxygen to blood tissue, but not DNA, as these cells do not have nuclei and are expelled during the maturation process. However, the nuclei of human white blood cells do contain DNA. Not only does the human body rely on DNA, but so do most living things, including plants, animals, and bacteria. Blood can be typed because of the DNA contained in our white blood cells. After reviewing the latest discoveries in DNA and gene sequencing, one science writer pointed out that humans are suspected to contain only about 32,000 genes, which is much less than science's first estimate of 100,000. Oddly, out of our gene pool, we share 223 genes with bacteria. These are genes that do not exist in other life forms, such as worms, flies, or even yeast. Researchers thought some ancient vertebrate genome took on bacterial genes in the same way that certain types of bacteria take in genes in a response to their environment. What a come down from the pinnacle of the genomic tree of life, remarked Sitkin. In other words, at a relatively recent time, as evolution goes, modern humans acquired an extra 223 genes not through gradual evolution, not vertically on the tree of life, but horizontally, as a sideways insertion of genetic material from bacteria. 223 genes is more than two-thirds of the difference between me, you, and a chimpanzee. The mysterious appearance of these genes has vexed researchers who adhere to conventional theories of evolution. Stephen Schurer, director for mapping of the Human Genome Sequencing Center at Baylor College of Medicine, acknowledged that these extra genes are a jump that does not follow current evolutionary theories. Equally perplexing is rhesus, or Rh-negative blood, a term that designates the absence of a certain protein on the surface of red blood cells, a rare circumstance in the 30 human blood types. The Rh-negative phenotype is passed through the DNA of both parents. Oddly, a person with type O-negative blood is considered a universal donor who can donate blood to anyone, regardless of blood type, without causing a transfusion reaction. The Rh-negative blood type is considered a mutation of unknown origin, though it is theorized to have somehow originated in Europe about 25,000 to 30,000 years ago. Rosalind M. Frank of the University of Iowa noted that the Basques, an ethnic group centered in the Western Pyrenees between Spain and France, have the highest recorded level of Rh-negative blood. 
Some suspect that they are the original source of the Rh-negative blood type, although other populations with small populations of Rh-negative individuals are found in the eastern half of Asia, Madagascar, Australia, and New Zealand. Here again is evidence that something was occurring worldwide in the distant past. The Basques had advanced navigational skills and technology even before the rise of the Roman Empire. In addition, the Basque language cannot be connected to any other human tongue. Frank believed that the Basques might be the last remnants of the megalith builders who left behind dolmens, standing stones, and other rock structures. They may even have foraged in North America, as recently discovered British customs records show large Basque imports of beaver pelts in the period 1380 to 1433, long before Columbus sailed. But the tale of human origins linked to extraterrestrials gains even more strength when one considers that many Rh-negative children are born with a tail. The cauda equina is a nerve bundle extending beyond the spinal column. Some babies are born with an extended cauda equina, in essence a tail, which must be surgically removed at birth. The word cauda is Latin for tail. In astrological terms, the cauda draconis means the dragon's tail, the point at which the moon's orbit passes below the ecliptic and signifies malefic aspects. Researcher Patty Boyer, among those questioning the relatively sudden appearance of Rh-negative blood, wrote... The introduction of the Rh-negative blood type was not a naturally occurring part of human evolution. This would lend credence that the Rh-negative factor was introduced from an outside source. Could the source be from human-like beings from another planet? Or maybe we are just as alien as they are in that we are a product of their manipulation and interference. Could they have come here and manipulated life forms already present on Earth to create modern man? She asked, adding... I suggest that man is a creation of a highly technological race of human-like beings that, from the heavens to the earth, came. I suggest that these advanced beings are still among us today, and are still very active in the affairs of man. The Black Nobility With the fall of the great empires, the descendants of the early priests and money-changers rose to power in Venice. These Venetians intermarried with existing European royalty, gained power, and became known as the black nobility, both because of their generally antisocial behavior and their usurpation of royal titles. Prior to the rise of the Rothschild dynasty, the secrets of money manipulation passed down from Sumer and Babylon found a home with the infamous Medici family of Italy, who virtually ruled Venice from the 1420s to 1737. The Medicis provided the world with at least four popes, Leo X, Clement VII, Pius IV, and Leo XI, a number of cardinals, and two queens of France. Giovanni de Bici de Medici founded the Medici Bank, which grew into an early multinational corporation. To their credit, the Medicis also provided the financing for both Leonardo da Vinci and Christopher Columbus. The Medicis, along with other oligarchic families of Venice and Genoa, gained power through their monopolies, or privileged trading rights, and marriages with royalty. By the late 12th century, this group had gained control over Venice and the commerce of most of the Western world. The Illuminati News website states, these people earned the title of black nobility from their ruthless lack of scruple. They employed murder, rape, 
kidnapping, assassination, robbery, and all manner of deceit on a grand scale, brooking no opposition to attaining their objectives. They all have immense wealth, and money is power. The most powerful of the black nobility families are located in Italy, Germany, Switzerland, Britain, Holland, and Greece, in that order. Their roots may be traced back to the Venetian oligarchs, led by the Medicis, who are of Khazar extraction, and married into these royal houses in the early part of the 12th century. Following a great Khazar victory over the Arabs, the future emperor, Constantine V, married a Khazar princess, and their son became Emperor Leo IV, also known as Leo the Khazar. The Medici popes and Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli, were Khazars, as is the present pope, John Paul II. Not all black nobility are of royal houses, and many of the royal families no longer have kingdoms. As with many of the secret societies discussed in this book, the black nobility also may trace their lineage back to ancient Sumer. These Venetians originally called themselves Sepharvium, which is a term derived from the collective names of two Mesopotamian cities, also known as the Sephara or the book towns, that is, repositories of knowledge. One was on the east bank of the Euphrates, and the other was the capital of Sargon I, where a great library was established. By the mid-1500s, the Medicis had added the arts and alchemy to their banking interests. Illustrating the interconnectedness of the bloodline families, Francesco I de' Medici, the second Grand Duke of Tuscany, in 1565 wedded Joanna of Austria, youngest daughter of Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand I and Anna of Bohemia and Hungary. He supported artists. He built the Medici Theater and founded the Academia della Crusca. Francesco also began practicing alchemy an interest in which he was joined by his stepbrother, Don Giovanni de' Medici. In the early 1600s, Don Giovanni worked with his palace librarian, Jewish scholar Benedetto Blanus, in the forbidden areas of astrology, alchemy, and the Kabbalah. During the Middle Ages, the black nobility aligned with the papacy, their traditional enemy, to stop a common foe. A family dynasty of German kings called the Hohenstaufens had arisen, and one Hohenstaufen in particular, Frederick I, was bent on conquest. Frederick, commonly known as Frederick Barbarossa, literally Redbeard in Italian, led his forces to Italy and eventually was crowned emperor in 1155. But after the black nobility and the papacy pushed Frederick out, he returned to Germany to fight his Welf cousin, Duke Heinrich, Henry the Lion, of Saxony and Bavaria in 1180. The conflict between Frederick and the other German princes, led by the Welf family, resulted in a major rift. The supporters of the Welfs were called the Guelphs, an Italianized version of Welf, while those who supported Frederick were called Ghibellines, a name derived from an old battle cry. With the death of Frederick while on crusade, his supporters lost the advantage, and the Guelphs, with the backing of the black nobility and the Pope, went on to support William of Orange when he took the throne of England. This eventually resulted in the formation of the Bank of England and the East India Company, the two major English financial powers of the 18th and 19th centuries. Working through a number of trusts or corporations, large banks, and the bewildering number of secret societies, the wealthy elite managed a long series of financial manipulations behind the booms and busts of the 1800s. They have been accused of creating the Federal Reserve System in the United States, fomenting World Wars I and II, the Great Depression, 
and the ups and downs of the U.S. economy leading to the meltdown of 2008. Part 4. The Modern Era For more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have seized upon well-publicized incidents such as my encounter with Castro to attack the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global and political structure, one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I am proud of it. David Rockefeller, Memoirs the foundational belief of the ruling elite is that they were born to rule, while the vast majority of the populace is born to slavery in one form or another. They see this as a natural consequence of their bloodline, or their blue blood, as it has been called. The term refers to the blood flowing in the veins of old aristocratic families and may be derived from the blue veins seen on people of light skin tone or from the old Hindu gods who were always depicted as blue where did they get the idea that most humans are born to be serfs or slaves? From the tyranny of the Anunnaki gods to the philosophy of Aristotle, who saw slavery as a necessary institution, to the wealthy elite of today, who cling to the simplistic Darwinian belief in survival of the fittest, the inheritors of wealth and privilege view themselves as God-ordained rulers of humankind. Hitler and the Blue Bloods and according to a growing number of conspiracy researchers, those causing the problems can all be traced back to 13 to 15 families who are all interconnected by blood. Webster Griffin Tarpley, James Higgum, John Coleman, Ralph Epperson, and others have identified the intermarried families connected to the black nobility. The old line ruling families believe that they have the right to rule the world because they are descended from the emperors of the ancient Roman and so-called Holy Roman Empires, wrote Tarpley and Higgum. According to these authors, these families include the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Warburgs, the Lazards, the Seifs, the Goldmans, the Morgans, the Schroders, the Bushes, and the Harrimans. Tarpley and Higgum offered other names rarely heard in the United States, including the Justiniani family of Rome and Venice, who traced their lineage to the Emperor Justinian. Sir Jocelyn Hambro of Hambros Merchant Bank. Pier Paolo Luzzati Fecchis, whose lineage dates back six centuries to the most ancient Luzzatos of Venice, and Umberto Ortolani of the ancient black nobility family of the same name. They identified a number of other old Venetian black nobility names, tracing their lineages back to Roman senators and noblemen. Like many other wealthy families, these names are largely unknown to the public, including some family members, due to the inordinate seek used to cloak both their activities and their history. But occasionally there are glimpses of what really goes on within family circles. It is shocking, but possible, that one unexpected member of this black nobility, and the Rothschild family in particular, was none other than the Nazi Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. This astounding information came from Walter C. Langer, 
a psychologist who produced a wartime psychoanalysis of Hitler for the OSS. Langer reported that a secret pre-war Austrian police report proved that Hitler's father was the illegitimate son of a young peasant cook named Maria Anna Schickelgruber, who at the time she conceived her child was employed as a servant in the home of Baron Solomon Rothschild in Vienna. Rothschild biographer Ferguson stated that the son of one of Solomon's senior clerks recalled that by the 1840s, Solomon Rothschild had developed a somewhat reckless enthusiasm for young girls. Upon learning of her pregnancy in 1837, Maria left Vienna and gave birth to Hitler's father of record, Alois. Five years later, she reportedly married an itinerant miller named Johann Jörg Heidler. Yet Alois carried his mother's name of Schickelgruber until nearly forty years of age, when Heidler's brother, Johann Nepomuk Heidler, offered him legitimacy. Due to the illegible writing of a parish priest in changing the birth register, the name Heidler became Hitler, either by mistake or to confuse authorities. Alois Hitler, a government bureaucrat, married his second cousin, Clara Polzel, in 1885, after obtaining special Episcopal dispensation. Adolf was born in Braunau, Austria, in 1889, when Alois was 52 years old. In the late 1930s, Hitler's English nephew, William Patrick Hitler, hinted to newsmen about the German leader's Jewish background. Hitler's personal attorney, Hans Frank, confirmed this scandalous information, but reported that the father of Alois had the last name Frankenberger instead of Rothschild. When no record of a Frankenberger could be found in Vienna, the matter was quietly dropped by all but Hitler. Historians have long noted that the question of possible Jewish ancestry haunted Hitler throughout his life. It is possible that Hitler discovered his Jewish background and his relation to the Rothschilds, and aware of their enormous power to make or break European governments, re-established contact with the family, wrote Ralph Epperson. This would partially explain the enormous support he received from the international banking fraternity closely entwined with the Rothschild family as he rose to power. This incredible story might be written off as wartime propaganda, except for the fact that the OSS never made this story public, indicating that the tale may have been considered too sensitive to make public, even as propaganda. Uh, once again, that was an audio excerpt from Jim Marr's most recent book, Our Occulted History, and the subtitle is Do the Global Elite Conceal Ancient Aliens? This book was published by William Morrow, and it came out quite recently in February of 2013. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Adios.